Thanks for joining us. I wanted to start by getting your overall thoughts on the session. It's over. Uh, you know, I always reflect back on my state of the state and what we talked about in the state of the state. And then, you know, there's always distractions and issues. And it seems like they get to be more intense at the end of the session, which is not new, maybe a little more than it used to. Uh, but, you know, we get all, we got done. Uh, my education initiative, my launch initiative, our infrastructure initiative, all of those things were done, most of them with very little deviation from what I proposed. So I was pleased. We'll get into specific policies <clears throat> later, but I did want to ask if any of those issues that came up, especially the social issues, were a surprise to you this year. Uh, it seems like there always are some of them. Uh, they, you know, they're and there are quite a few of them that didn't get through uh, also, but that seems to be the time we live in. And uh, I believe a lot of it is people through their, whatever, however they get their information, see things happening in other states and they're very concerned about it. So they wanna do something in Idaho that really doesn't address an, an issue in Idaho as much as it does uh, something from some other state and given the fact that there's so many people from California and Washington and Oregon moving into Idaho you can see where that would be an issue. Sure well especially with people getting their news from social media and not necessarily from local outlets I know that that plays into the conversation too. I, I wanted to ask about Medicaid you know there was a lot of concern from lawmakers this year about the expanded budget you know the highest we've ever seen and we know that the Department of Health and Welfare is currently in the redetermination process to figure out who is still eligible under expansion after the COVID federal emergency ended um, we know that some will no longer qualify and have to shift to private insurance um, some lawmakers have express concern about the six month timeline for that rich redetermination process saying that it's taking too long. Are, are you happy with the pace? Well, I'm also concerned. And, you know, Medicaid uh, is, has been an issue. And of course, we did the expansion. And then the federal government came along and uh, because of the emergency during COVID said, anybody that was on Medicaid would have to stay on Medicaid. Well, we've got by almost every measurement, one of the best exchanges, state uh, managed exchanges, which is, allows people to get insurance in various other places of any place. And I want people that are really deserving to be on Medicaid, but I want people to get off of Medicaid and go on private insurance and employer insurance and uh, insurance relative to their job. Uh, and there's gonna be some time frame for that determination. Director Jepson tells me, that I, he cannot train up people to ask the right questions uh, to be in compliant with both state and federal law overnight. So to hurry that along, which we're all, we all wanna do that, has some logistical challenges because of the learning curve it takes to be sensitive. And the other problem is getting old people. Everybody used to have a landline, uh, now it's, through text, it's through phone. People don't take phone calls from numbers they don't know. So it's much more difficult to get a hold of people than it used to be in the past. And those are the challenges, but we'll get there. We know that expansion is just one reason that the Medicaid budget is, is so large. Are you satisfied with the other steps the Department of Health and Welfare is doing to reduce those Medicaid costs? We, we, we've, 
when I hired Dave Jepson uh, four and a half years ago, uh, that was one of the conversations we had. You know, he came from the healthcare industry, so he was aware of that. And I says, I want to get, I want to get the cost of Medicaid down uh, to the taxpayers. Everybody knows I'm an education guy, and the two things that have been the drivers of the economy, contrary to education and contrary to tax relief, are Medicaid and corrections. We're making good progress in corrections, but we literally have more control over corrections than we do over Medicaid. And with the lack of control the state has, it's more difficult, but we're still on a mission to get the cost of Medicaid down. When you when you talk about progress that we've made with corrections, are you talking about the recidivism rates going down over the years? Well, and that we got that we have programs for people. It takes a while, but if 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 you take an incarcerated person, you know they're going to get out. You know they're going to be back on the street. And you know one thing we didn't do before was even let them have a driver's license. Now they have a driver's license. Now they have a pathway to a job. Now they have a skill, and all of those things are going to lower our recidivism rate. Back to the Department of Health and Welfare. You know, Attorney General Labrador, as you know, is investigating recipients of community grants from health and welfare that have been doled out since 2021. Were you given a heads up that this investigation was coming? No. Have you had conversations with Attorney General Labrador well, well, about we, it? You, yes, we talked about it, but I, you know, it was like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, and then it's not okay, uh, and that's, but the, that, investigation will play out and uh, we we want to be compliant with the laws and with the intent and but it was providing programs for kids you, you touched on this a bit but there were a lot of concerns from lawmakers on the joint budget committee especially that these grants some of them at least were going out to unqualified recipients and for those who aren't familiar these are grants meant to help children with learning loss between the ages of five and 13 years old. And some of these grants went to programs that also served children younger than five, in addition to the older kids. Um, you touched on this, but do you share that concern? Well, the, we always want to be compliant with whether it be fate, uh, federal law, state law, or state legislative intent. And we were kind of signaled that given the mix of what it is, it was okay. And now, in hindsight, they say it's not. We'll we'll let it play out and see what happens. We we want to be compliant. Where are you personally on it, though? Well, I think if we knew this is one-time money, and this was basically uh, to help people that had suffered some of the negative consequences of COVID, uh, we wanted to have uh, uh, help care for children, particularly you know parents that were having challenges. Uh, we wanted to get that. We want to continue uh, to address uh, care for children, and I want kids to be as prepared as possible when they get into kindergarten so they're reading proficiently by the end of the third grade. Those are all goals of mine, and but we can, we can do that at age uh, five, And but sometimes it's hard if somebody says they're going to be five next week to say, well, you can't go on the program at the opening day this week, but that's one example. We've seen tension between the Attorney General's office and the Department of Health and Welfare, but how is your relationship with the Attorney General, more broadly speaking? Well, of course, we're on the land board together, and we see each other at other events, and uh, we'll we'll work our way through it. You know, we uh, General Wasden was there for a long, long time, and there was a 
obviously a comfort level. Uh, uh, General Labrador uh, has a different position and we'll work our way through it. I, I wanted to um, touch on abortion related issues. So last year after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, uh, you wrote about the importance of making sure that we're taking care of mothers and families while celebrating the ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you wrote that families, churches, charities, and local and state government must stand ready to lift them up and help them and their families with access to adoption services, health care, financial and food assistance, counseling and treatment, and family planning. We are being called to support women and our fellow community members in extraordinary new ways, and I'm confident Idahoans are ready to meet this responsibility with love and compassion. But this year, lawmakers declined to extend Medicaid coverage for postpartum mothers, um, and they didn't extend the Maternal Mortality Review Panel. Um, is the state of Idaho living up to its pro-life reputation? Well, we'll continue to work on those. You know, the review panel is something that I think uh, that we ought to continue to do. There were some issues with the way it was being done. Uh, like that, what? Uh, well, I, I, that's what the failure to continue with it was some objections people have. We'll try and uh, address those uh, objections going forward. But, you know, we we all of those things I said are still true today. Uh, there, it's, you know, it ebbs and flows. And we've got two or three different court rulings that are in play. So until we understand the lay of the land, uh, you know, the Dobbs decision changed a lot of things. And there are other laws that have changed a lot of things. We've got to see how that plays out. But I'm still... The issue of supporting uh, supporting mothers, and whether it's foster, adoption, fill in the blank, those are all very important. The, the governor's office in the past has put together task forces and committees. Uh, I'm thinking about faith healing from Governor Otter. Is the maternal mortality review panel something that you can address on an, an executive action level? Well, I think the first thing we can do is address the concerns of the legislators that uh, had a significant issue with it, and that's we will we will work on that. Um, we're currently waiting um, for a ruling from Judge Lynn Windmill on whether a doctor can face prosecution for an out-of-state referral for abortion. As as we're having this conversation on Tuesday, do you think that doctors should face prosecution for out-of-state abortion referrals? Well, that's. That's one of those issues that I said are in play. Those, it's hard to figure out which direction we're going until we know what the rules are federally, what the rules are through our, our state and federal courts. Uh, our state court says we can do what we've, uh, what we've done. They ruled that, Supreme Court ruled that last, I can't remember how many months ago. Uh, so there is some unknown out there in, in uh, uh, Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision, and we're trying to understand all the different ramifications of it. Uh, my positions uh, the, that I'm pro-life, including the life of the mother, and we're, I wanna make sure that that's uh, fulfilled. So on this specifically, knowing the interplay between the legislature and the courts is still ongoing and will be for some time. Where are you specifically on out-of-state referrals for abortion? Well, it, the, <laughs> I, I think that's gonna be one of the rulings that we're gonna see here. Uh, real soon, and that's being argued right now. Right. But but does but does citizen Brad Little have an opinion on it? Well, uh, I referrals, uh, and I actually looked at a case this morning on a totally unrelated issue 
where it was referred out of state. That's that's guaranteed by the Constitution uh, that a doctor's right to make a referral because uh, a, you know a good example is North Idaho, uh, Coeur d'Alene. Uh, you know, Kootenai Health has grown a lot, but many people in North Idaho utilize the services in Spokane hospitals. To say you couldn't refer there or somebody in Moscow couldn't be referred to Pullman, uh, those are things that are real problematic. Uh, somebody in uh, Fruitland can't go to Ontario. So I don't think we want to dwell on that. Uh, that that's the benefit of all Idahoans. Well, while we're on health care and legislation, um, in your transmittal letter for the Vulnerable Child Protection Act, which was the piece of legislation that banned gender-affirming surgeries and hormone treatments for minors, you said, as policymakers, we should take great caution uh, when we're asking the government to interfere in these health care decisions. We already knew these gender confirmation surgeries for children weren't happening in Idaho, and most people agreed that that was that was a fine part of the legislation, but there were already teens in Idaho who were receiving the hormone therapies, uh, who were concerned about the continuation of their treatment and a sudden stop to that treatment. Uh, what would you say to those families? Well, I, I wanna be uh, understanding if they're getting that therapy, not for gender transformation, but they're getting that therapy for a different reason, they can continue to get those. So it's a, a narrow group of, of, uh, uh, of kids that is not very well defined. There's a, the, the uh, number of uh, uh, children that we're talking about. I, again, I think this is gonna play out in a larger scale. There's about 20 states that have this right now. And I know there's gonna be more, uh, probably a year from now, after the federal courts have played in, we're gonna know more, but that's, we, I, I, to me, uh, the, what we do in behavioral health to help these kids when they're young, uh, either through their faith-based groups, through uh, social services, and particularly through schools, I think is gonna make a big difference because we see so many challenges uh, that kids today have that are different than kids even 10 years ago, uh, that we really need to concentrate on what we do in the mental health side to help these kids, uh, given the challenges that they have today in modern society. You, you said it's a narrow group of teenagers who are currently receiving this, uh, transgender minors who are receiving this treatment, but they, they are still here and they are in Idaho and they are receiving the treatment. Um, should, should they, you believe they should have to stop that treatment? Yes. I, you um, campaigned on creating an Idaho where our children will want to stay, uh, but we've personally talked to families who have already looked at relocating, who have already put their houses on the market. Um, and I've talked to other pregnant women who have lost their OBGYNs um, because of concern over prosecution over the abortion laws. How do you address the concerns within your party without alienating Idahoans who would otherwise want to stay? Well. Of course, healthcare uh, is OBGYN is very expensive program. Uh, right here, about four blocks from where we're sitting in Emmett right now, uh, the hospital there is having challenges, and they had challenges way before the Dobbs decision. It's really expensive, particularly for small hospitals that don't have a big volume, and that's going to continue to be the place. We want to be supportive, and matter of fact, the number one 
priority for us in our launch and in higher education is more people to help in the healthcare field. And that's gonna to continue to be the case. Uh, but in the instances of the two hospitals, uh, though, that has been something that's happened for a long time in Idaho because providing those services are very expensive for particularly a small hospital. But, but the current political climate has exacerbated that exodus and, and is also, you know, we've heard from hospitals that they're having trouble recruiting new healthcare workers to the state as well. So, so how do you overcome that while still acknowledging that this is a priority for the Republican Party? It, but it's always been a problem. Uh, you know, we, it's not lost on anybody that uh, even with all the resources we put in to try and get residents to come in to be whatever kind of a doctor, particularly in, in rural Idaho, uh, we had the least amount of doctors per capita. I think we were uh, second or third to last. And that's why we need to continue to put resources in there uh, to recruit doctors and particularly uh, to get our Idaho uh, kids uh, to go to medical school and practice here in Idaho. I wanted to um, switch gears now and talk about the firing squad legislation. Um, this, this was a bill that you supported, that you signed. C can you talk about um, the reasons that you supported the firing squad. Well, I signed it. Uh, I wasn't out leading the leading the band on it. Capital punishment. Uh, I'm I'm a believer in capital punishment. I'm not excited about capital punishment. Uh, last year, the legislature uh, we proposed the legislature basically some help uh, so that activists couldn't stop the availability of of, of the right kind of lethal injection pharmaceuticals. I believe we're still gonna get there, uh, but as a message, we're gonna say, we're gonna do capital punishment in Idaho. That is not at all our preferred uh, method, but we're not gonna let a group of activists stop us from having uh, justice here in Idaho. You, you said that this sends a message, but it could very well result in state employees having to um, execute a death row inmate. And then this is something you touched on in your transmittal letter. You said you were concerned about minimizing stress on corrections personnel. Um, you know, and there are multiple people, as you know, involved in an execution. I, considering your concern for their mental health, are you willing to be a witness to one of these firing squad executions should it come to that and go through what you're asking state employees I, to go through? I don't believe it'll come to that. Let's just suffice it to say that Why that's, uh, because I believe, uh, I believe that we're gonna find, because a lot of states are in the same condition in Idaho, that we're gonna find uh, the necessary compounds we need to uh, have as, it, there's nothing humane about the death penalty, but have the most dignified and humane uh, execution process we possibly can. But if it does come to that, are you willing to be a witness to that execution? We'll, we'll, we're a long way to go before we get to there. We got a lot of things to do before that point in time. You know, back to some of the social issues that came up this session, you vetoed the library bill and that veto stood. Uh, but we know that there are already ongoing discussions about what, if anything, the legislature should do and who should be responsible for what kids are checking out, whether that's the libraries or the parents. Um, have you been involved in any of those talks about what's next? Yes. What are you hearing? <laughs> well, I, you know, I. Before I vetoed the bill, I talked to the sponsors of it, and I, I, and I, I put that in my 
uh, transmittal letter that I, I was worried about the unintended consequences. The intended consequences, we don't want pornography available to our children in libraries. But the, the case they cited was the Boise Library. I said, the Boise Library's got lots of resources, lots of paid staff, lots of room for a children's only. Uh, I know communities where there's one room and it's a volunteer in there. Are we, are we gonna allow people to go in there and make money by saying, this book that should be in this section was over in this section because somebody put it in the wrong section and it's available and, it, and it's $2,500 per instance, not $2,500 per, $2, per library. Some of these library budgets are only sixty dollars or $70,000 for the whole year. I'm a literacy person. I will continue to be a literacy person. And one of the best ways to help uh, families and children uh, get over their literacy hurdles is to have a good library. And so I don't, I, I am opposed to pornography being available uh, to children, but I also want to support libraries. And this one kind of tipped the scales the other way. Since then, uh, I've had conversations, some of the people interested is, what can we do to address the concerns of the authors of the legislation? You know, I, I did notice that the House attempted to override the veto, and that override vote got more votes than the initial library bill itself, that there were a handful of Republicans who signed on to the override attempt who didn't support the original legislation. Um, the legislature also overrode your veto on the property tax bill, of course, um, the first veto override in 15 years. Is there a takeaway in there about your ongoing relationship with the legislature? Well, I, obviously, uh, I'm not a fan of being overridden on veto. I veto bills for a specific purpose. But if you take the tax bill and you look at what I proposed in the state of the state, which was 120 million in ongoing transfer of your sales and income tax over to help with your property tax, the end number was 116 or 117, plus some more uh, money there. I vetoed the bill, sat down with the Senate, helped them craft a bill that addressed some real fundamental problems about how we paid for roads, how we paid for public defense, the implementation of it. The Senate overwhelmingly passed the bill, sent it over to the House, they rejected it, and they jealously guard their constitutional right to be the source of property tax, of tax legislation. I, I've been around, this is not my first rodeo on, on tax legislation. So they shot down the Senate bill, but they had a, it took three bills and six appropriation bills to take care of the issues that I brought up in the bill I vetoed. So, so in a way, the legislature acknowledged your issues. You said it, not me. The, well. This was a big year for education, of course, including the Idaho Launch Scholarship, uh, the program expansion for the Idaho Launch Program. But one of the tweaks to the program that you proposed was uh, telling students that they couldn't use the $8,000 for four-year institutions like University of Idaho, Boise State University, LCSC, ISU. We know that those universities offer training for arguably in-demand careers like teaching and healthcare. Uh, are you concerned about the new restrictions that were placed on that program? I, I take a different view of it uh, significantly because originally 
that was all going to funnel through launch. Uh, but actually, when I started talking about it last fall, I wanted to go through opportunity scholarships, which is what you're talking about as our traditional four-year institutions. The trailer bill basically said, if you want to go career technical, if you want to be a welder or plumber or an HVAC or a truck driver or a lineman, you go through launch. If, if you are a high school graduating senior and you want to go to the, the traditional master's degree, the opportunity scholarships. So put more money in opportunity scholarships and instead of having them all go through launch, now opportunity scholarships are one way and launch is another. But we have always, uh, the history of this state paid for part of the cost of education, for journalists, for animal scientists, for uh, political scientists, for lawyers, for doctors, but we never paid for career technical. Uh, we've had some programs. Now those great careers in career technical, we're gonna have more kids staying in Idaho with great careers because the launch program is gonna be available to them. I know there were a lot of public school advocates who were very happy with a lot of the legislation that came out of this session. Raising starting teacher pay, um, the, the making permanent, the empowering parents grant program, um, passing a bill that opens up open enrollment at all public schools across Idaho. Um, there was also a large investment in school facilities, um, tackling it through multiple ways, including the property tax bill. Uh, but at the same time, you know, just last week, a fire caused by faulty electrical wiring burned down a good portion of a Pocatello High School. And we know that there are a number of old schools around Idaho that have a lot of backlogged maintenance. Uh, are, are you worried that this year's investments might not go far enough for addressing these problems? Well, it'll continue to be a, an issue. And how we do that, uh, the, the part of the property tax bill, uh, I don't think addresses the big issue. Uh, but remember in property tax, the money that we're putting in this 120 million ongoing plus, plus the uh, uh, surplus eliminator part of it, uh, the money that we put into teacher pay, uh, teacher benefits, uh, certified staff pay, uh, school safety, technology, and discretionary money, which is for anything, plus the money we're putting into roads, sewer, water, and all those other programs are programs that are generally funded by property tax. As this plays out and, and highway district commissioners school board members, county commissioners, city councilmen see that there should be a lessened need for property taxes. Now, I'm not making any promises, uh, but those are all indirect property tax relief that are out there right now. That will open up more avenues for us to do, which is our constitutional obligation, which is for school districts uh, to, run a, to run bonds. And I understand why the bonds haven't been passing, particularly in the residential area, People have had their property taxes double in, in some instances, four or five years. Well, you can see why people are, we're having a hard time getting votes. The, the acceleration of real estate prices are going down. We're, we're paying for more and more of the services. I don't know, uh, and that is gonna be a big policy issue, if we want the state to pay for all schools, uh, because if you got a school district that's done the right thing and has 
built their schools, they haven't grown too fast, they've got capacity, they've done the maintenance, we're gonna take the taxes from them and pay for the district that hasn't done anything? How many, my staff doesn't like when I say this, how many basketball gymnasiums are you gonna give every school district when they do it? Those are big policy uh, decisions that I'm more than willing to have with my legislative partners, but let's see how all this money in property tax relief and roads and sewer and water uh, go to alleviating the concern. I, I think communities ought to pay for their schools and we can help them as we do now with bond levy equalization. But getting rid of that March election date, which was part of the property tax bill that passed, that complicates the conversation for a lot of school districts. Yeah, we've got a election coming up here and in just a few weeks here in Emmett that's it's and the the March date is not that important in this year but it's going to be real important in in uh, a year from now when you have a big uh, and but I I believe that we shouldn't have too many election dates but remember we used to have every date was available for a school bond election and the deal that was cut between the legislature and the education proponents was keep November, keep May, keep March, and keep August. The school uh, advocates were willing to give up August, but the legislature, to my less than enthusiastic uh, response, did away with March. And I think March is critical in the long run to help these school districts. You know, it's speaking of too many election dates, you've said that any fixes to the presidential primary are in the legislature's hands. Um, this is the first year they can call themselves back into session. Yeah. Have you heard anything about a special session? Uh, I, even, even before they amended the Constitution, uh, I would have legislators call me and say, this is critical to my constituents or to me, we need a special session. Myself and literally all of my predecessors uh, we have the least amount of special sessions in Idaho, or at least we have. We've only had four in the last 20 years uh, that there ought to be an agreement. Uh, it ought to be widely viewed by the legislature before they come to town. Otherwise, if you come to town and there's no agreement, the whole process for the public to engage is done in you know, one committee room or one leadership room. And so from the transparency side, I think that uh, special sessions where you waive all the rules and, and hurry things through is only should be necessary if there's a real emergency uh, as we have in the past. Have you heard anything about lawmakers calling themselves back? Always. Just one last question. What didn't the legislature address this year that you wish they had? Well, probably the only thing is uh, you know, the package that we sent to them. I said we got 95% of what we wanted done. Uh, 5% was I wanted to do some more, paying down some more debt uh, that we didn't get done. Uh, but, but we've done a great job of our rainy day funds, uh, surpluses and out years. Uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the spending level uh, in the out years of some of the programs we have. Uh, because we've done a great job of getting getting our great bond rating. Uh, we just issued uh, $400 million worth of bonds for road projects. And in this market, to get that done at 3.8% uh, was, was absolutely incredible.
All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho, by the Friends of Idaho Public Television, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Marcia Franklin, the producer and host of Dialogue. For more than 25 years, we've been bringing you conversations that matter. More than 150 of those conversations are with writers, and now you can take them with you wherever you go, while you're walking, around the house, or in the car. Just search for Dialogue with Marsha Franklin on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms, and remember to subscribe so that new shows download automatically. Enjoy.